Hey, everybody, welcome to the Rooftop Podcast, where we are continuing our buried stories of East Palestine. And I, I actually named this series of interviews this because that is exactly, in my assessment, what has happened after spending about 36 hours in a part of the country that I, uh, I know pretty well and love very much uh, with some very, very dear friends um, in and around East Palestine. I left there profoundly moved by the leadership that is actually occurring and not being reported and the stories of what's really happening and how strikingly different they are from these false narratives that have been put out there. So I uh, wholeheartedly offered to use the Rooftop Podcast as a platform to reveal the buried stories of East Palestine, the real leadership uh, activities that are going on from both leaders with titles like my guest here and leaders without titles who are business owners and entrepreneurs. And my hope is that in this series of interviews that you can sit and listen and watch and really get local context and local appreciation and local perspective of what's actually happening here so that not only you can appreciate and support what our friends in East Palestine are going through, but more importantly, or at least as important is to learn what they've learned uh, because it could happen in your town. It could happen in my town or some different version of a crisis. And um, the way that these folks, the leaders in particular have handled this to me models what leadership looks like. And this gentleman that I have on right now is no exception. Uh, Jim Brown, the police chief for East Palestine. He and I have spent some time together. We really connected pretty quick and, uh, have, have tread a lot of common ground in the Middle East. Uh, and uh, just he's just an amazing leader. And I can't wait for you to get his perspective. So, Jim, thanks for joining me on the Rooftop Podcast. Well, thanks, Scott. Appreciate you having me on. Thank your team, Rooftop Leadership, as well, for making this happen. Um, you know, we talked about early on when you were here the last time, it was important for us to, to get our message out there um, and get it out there in a way that didn't have left the right-leaning um, I guess ideology to it. And um, so I appreciate the opportunity um, for you doing this for our, our little town here. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. And and I tell you, you know, the one thing that has been, there's been some consistent themes that we'll talk on that I'll bring up during our, our interview today, Jim, because it's things that I want your perspective on as well, but there've been some consistent themes, you know, and one of the themes that has, has been consistently talked about by the leaders of East Palestine is, you know, setting the politics aside and focusing on the damn problem. Thoughts on that? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, and we, we experienced that early on and it was, it was not something that I personally was prepared for, honestly, um, to have that media influx. And, and I watched the local media versus the national media and the, uh, the story was completely different. I think the local media got it right. Um, they were here trying to do the story and cover the event without the uh, hyperbole, um, which is what we got from the national side. It was just a, it was a complete night and day as far as the coverage went from local to national. Yeah, I agree 100 percent. And one of the big reasons I wanted to go there and just spend time with you guys. Um, I always start these interviews of the buried stories out kind of the same way, Jim. And I wonder if I could ask you this question. In the context of your role as police chief, 
And you've already told me some amazing stories of things that you all had to deal with. Can you give us one story or one example of something that happened in the realm of law enforcement with this derailment that people outside of East Palestine would be very surprised to hear if they knew? Well, we talked a little bit before going on. Um, I think the, the thing that surprised me the most was actually what the dispatchers had to go through during that event. Um, yeah. uh, I, I can get right into that now. Yeah, or go if for you'd it. Rather, Absolutely. Okay. Go, go for it. So, again, um, not, I guess, a lack of preparation. Um, you, you do all kinds of training in your career and you, you try to come up with worst case scenarios and we've been very active with the school and, and trying to prepare for any event that they may have there. Obviously, uh, a train derailment from the law enforcement perspective really wasn't on our radar. Right. Um, obviously, as you know, that was a fire hazmat scene. Um, so I guess, you know, the guys did an amazing job that night, uh, setting up barricades, going door to door, trying to start the evacuation process, uh, closing off roads with cruisers, um, and, and adjusting that schedule as needed. But again, going back to the, the biggest thing that I spent the most time pondering on after the event was what the dispatchers had to go through in the influx of calls. Not just during the event, um, now we are a small department, you know, we have three full-time dispatchers and four part-time. The, the dispatcher on duty that night was a part-time dispatcher and she had been on the job roughly seven months. Wow. And she handled it like a champ. Like she knocked it out of the park. Uh, really proud of her and, and the effort that she put in that night. Handling the calls now, we, we only man our dispatch center with one dispatcher on a normal shift. That's it. And they dispatch for three towns and eight departments total between police, fire, and EMS. Um, so on, on a day, they can have their hands full. But this event, she monitored the radio traffic, uh, the telephone calls, um, logged everything that was going on into the records management system, handled it all by herself until help could arrive. She even had the presence of mind to check on the police officers that were out there, knowing they were out there without any PPE. So, you know, to, to have all that going on, but still have the presence of mind to do those radio checkups on the officers was pretty amazing. And uh, I guess getting into the event, um, we talked about last time, the, the calls that were coming in, it had to do with conspiracy theories, um, and then the calls of hatred started to come in as well. And not just on the fire side or the police side, but the fire side as well. Um, they were getting some, some nasty uh, phone calls and some threats over there as well. And, and you know, I, I think for, for us to deal with that in law enforcement is one thing. Um, and not to say that you ever, you ever get used to it, but you kind of get numb to it. But the, those dispatchers, um, they got exposed to it and they got exposed to it in a bad way. And, uh, and I could see it was taking, it was taking a toll on them. Um, just like us, they were doubled up on shifts. Um, some of them didn't have a day off and they were just trying to get through another shift. And those calls coming in, we had to make some adjustments on the fly. And we had to 
we had to change the way they answered the phone because they used to answer the phone, East Palestine police and fire. In an effort for me to try to insulate them, I'm like, we got to come up with another name. So it was decided we would use emergency communications. Um, just taking the police and the fire right out of the conversation from the get-go, just try to ease some of the burden that they, they had to go through on those phone calls. So that was the first step. The second step we did was we automatically started dumping all the calls of hatred, all the calls that really weren't benefiting our community in any way. Um, we started dumping those to Lieutenant Johnson's email or his voicemail. Um, and then he would take time on his shift to kind of go through those and, and weed out the ones that needed to follow it up on and then kind of just set aside the ones that were just calling in to spew hatred or uh, some, some other random conspiracy theory. So that, that was the second thing we did. The third thing we had to do, believe it or not, some of these people were calling in. We had one person call in 35 times in 30 minutes. And it, it, it was absolutely insane. So those calls, we had to work with our telephone provider to figure out a way that we could dump those calls immediately, just block their number to prevent them from calling in again. So our dispatch center, they average about 12 to 1,600 calls a month. They were at 5,300 in February alone. And that's taking away the two days that they were evacuated out of the building and at another location. So 50, over 5,300 calls in what the the 28 days that were in February. Yeah. You know, Jim, it's just astounding to me. And what did you say the normal number of calls was for a dispatcher? I would say they, they average based on the monthly reports anywhere between 12 and 1600 calls per month. And yeah. they were over 5,300 in February. And that averaged out to 190 calls a day. Wow. Into this little dispatch center. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. and the way that, they handled it the way that they looked out for the uh, the other officers. And you're right, what they were exposed to, you know, maybe you and I should have an offline conversation about, um, you know, our the nonprofit work that we do on trauma um, engagement for first responders and veterans. Maybe let's let's have a conversation offline on that if, if we can be of any assistance. Um, I appreciate that. Because that's a that's a real thing. Um, but, you know. The, the impact that that must have had on, you know, you're already dealing with one of the worst train derailments in history. You're dealing with this massive chemical spill. And then you add that to the top of it. Um, you know, it's, it's just astounding. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, when you're trying to deal with a crisis like that, and then you've got that kind of dis distraction, um, mm -hmm. it can really put lives at risk. Can it? Yeah. And, and, and that was concerning because, all those 10 digit lines and we have a 911 line for sure, but those 10 digit lines also get called for emergencies. And even if yeah. it was just yeah. one of our residents or business owner calling in for information, um, these people, these outside influencers and actors were basically tying up the phone lines for our people. Um, mm. Very, yeah. very disheartening. It's it's a really big point. I want to make sure that we and I, uh, that we hit is is and we'll come back to this. But the preponderance of these calls were outside influencers. They were outside actors. They were not from East Palestine, correct? At hundred um, percent, yeah. Um, calling in from Portland, uh, Washington, um, Texas, Maine. Um, it was it was astronomical. Virginia, 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the closest one that we were able to identify when I say an outside actor is southern part of Ohio. Um, yeah, so th these people, they have no ties to the, the area, to my knowledge. Um, and, and if they did, I, I certainly would have expected them to act with a little bit more decency and respect for the people that are here. Um, yeah. And Jim, can you just, talk? There, there, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say that, that there's really not enough words that I can say um, about, you know, if they thought what they were doing was was hindering or hampering or influencing or trying to intimidate the police and firefighters, they didn't succeed in that goal. The only thing that they succeeded in was tying up our phone lines for the people of this town who were experiencing our darkest hours. It, it's... If yeah. you can't tell, it, th th this is the one thing that, that has bothered me the most. Um, yeah. What those dispatchers had to go through and for a pointless, it's just pointless. Um, and and it, not only the effect it had on the dispatchers, but uh, the extra hours that the Lieutenant Johnson had to put in or Sergeant Moore um, or Detective Howder following up on some of these calls of hate and violence. Um, but those dispatchers didn't deserve it. Our town didn't deserve it. Our residents didn't deserve it. You know, um, to be to be tied up like that for something, it, it was just, it was absolutely insane. Yeah, it, it really, I can hear it in your voice, Jim. And, um, you know, it, it really, it it, um, it hits home, man. And, and what I would just say, and what I'm going to call out, and I don't really care who, who hears it is, you know, there's a culpability here. There's, you know, some folks need to look themselves in the mirror. Um, you know, I talk a lot about on, on this podcast, Jim, about this trance state, this fear-based behavior, this, this, uh, this application of, of anger and how we navigate the world, um, an emotional temperature that is just in the red all the time. And we're, people are going through their lives in this, in this trance state where they are just divided and spun up uh, to such a level that it's primal, it's tribal. And if folks want to see this on full display, I mean, just listen to this police chief right now. If you want to see what, what this shadow tribalism in our country looks like, that is frankly being fueled by divisionist leaders, uh, by irresponsible 24-7 news reporting, and, you know, applications of uh, social media with, with, with little or no regard for local impact and you combine all that together it's the devil's cocktail and 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 the the impact that it had in this ter terrible crisis uh is on full display right here and um jim we're gonna go we're gonna go deeper on this because i i really i know i know it's close to your heart and 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 it needs to be addressed um and 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 it needs to be it needs to be stopped but before we go any deeper on the actual event let's back up tell us a little bit about yourself uh, tell us a little bit about your journey into law enforcement, kind of where you grew up, and, and I know you served. Um, just give us a little backstory on Jim Brown and how you came into East Palestine as the police chief. Well, I'm, I'm going to do the best I can for you in that regard. Um, I'd much rather prefer talking about the men and women that I work with. I know you um, would. <laughs> but I'll, I'll give you a quick snapshot. So I, I grew up in this town, born and raised here. Um, as far as I know, my, my family goes back at least five generations in this town. Um, fortunate enough to have my own children graduate from this school. 
Um, so town has always meant a lot to me. Um, early on, I, I knew I wanted to go into the military. I wanted to serve and uh, graduated in 86. I was in boot camp in September of 86. Um, did my time in, in the Air Force on active duty. Did do um, the, uh, the Desert Storm thing. Um, got in there right before um, Desert Storm kicked off. Uh, a lot of my friends, I put a lot of my friends on those airplanes for Desert Shield. Um, I told you I, I happened to be in NCO school at the time. Um, they kicked me out of school to get my friends off and then put me back into school. And then I, I just had to wait for my number to be called. So uh, got over there, did that. And um, always, always, yeah. Um, when I went in, I wanted to be military police. That's what I wanted to do. Um, it just, it didn't work out. They said, Hey, it, it's fine. If you don't like what you're doing, you can cross train. Well, that's, that, that didn't happen. Um, they, they just had a way of keeping you where they needed you to be. <laughs> and, uh, so I got, I got to the point where I, th I think I had accomplished everything that I wanted to accomplish or, or, or what I was going to accomplish in the military. Um, and I, I wanted to be more, I wanted to be more of a, a presence in my community. I wanted to, instead of being the, I, I often felt like we were the, the police department for the, the world. Um, I wanted to do that at home. So I wanted to serve my community um, and I wanted to do it at the local level. I got out, put myself through the police academy. Um, decided I missed the military police officer. Um, but the unit I was assigned to was Battlefield circulation and control. Not a lot of ticket writing, not a lot of investigating. So uh, I, I did my three years there. Um, we had uh, our second child, um, and I felt like, well, now's a good time to stay home and be a dad. So uh, I focused on my uh, career, and I was fortunate enough to get hired by East Palestine in 1998. And uh, I've been here in, in one way, shape, or form ever since. Um, wow. Yeah, so 2017, um, the, a friend of mine, the, the last police chief, he, uh, he called me up and I was on vacation. He said, I'm done and I think you should apply. And I can't tell you how many times I told him I wouldn't want his job, um, but he convinced me and here I am. So, but, uh, but I'm happy to be here. I got a great group of people. Um, you know, if you ever need a reason to go to work, these people are why you do it. Mm -hmm. um, just, just proud, you know, to sit back and watch what they do every day and how they conduct themselves and the job that they're forced to do. And it's impressive. Yeah, you're right, man. I got to meet a couple of them uh, personally, and I 100% I, I agree with you. Um, when you cut out just a little bit. I want to make sure that we have that continuity. You said that when you did you were you like in, in the reserve or air guard uh, for a period of time? Uh, the Army National Guard. Got it. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, so a total of around, would that have been around seven years total service? So I, I actually did seven and a half active duty and then I did three more in the national guard. So 96 to 99 in the national guard unit. Wow. And then, and then grew up in the East, East Palestine police department, stepped into the role of chief reluctantly, which doesn't surprise me. I love that. I love that about yeah. you. Um, and tell us a little bit about the composition of your, of your department right now, Jim? So right now we have about nine uh, full-time police officers, including myself. Um, I, I said we have three full-time dispatchers, four part-time, a couple of part-time police 
the officers, but uh, part-time help in law enforcement is really tough, tough to come by right now. Um, so uh, we do the best we can with what we have. Um, a small group of people, but they're real good at what they do, and they ain't afraid to step in and, and uh, step up. Right. And so uh, what was a day in the life like for the the – you and the East Palestine Police Department before the, you know, the, the, the train derailment. Kind of what did your day look like? You know, just talk us through a little bit about that. Because what I'm trying to establish here, Jim, is just to kind of give folks a feel. You know, we're talking about a town that's less than 5,000 people, you know, four or five stoplights, a town where just about everybody knows each other. Um, kind of paint the picture for us a little bit in terms of just kind of police, you know, day-to-day life. So on like on my end, um, small department, we don't have an administrative staff. We don't have a record staff. It's um, most of what I do is you know, anybody here can tell you that I'm the chief or that they work for me. But honestly, I come to work every day and I work for them. Uh, that, that's that's the, the best I can do for them. So uh administratively uh just payroll inventory ordering making sure that the bills get paid um you know just a, a lot of uh public information requests those reports they all run through me so I, I get those knocked out as i can and um and the guys it's just like any other any other police department anywhere i often say the difference between a domestic violence call in east palestine and and cincinnati is maybe cincinnati shows up with two, three cruisers and four to six guys. But oftentimes in Palestine, it's one guy, one car. And maybe, maybe if we're lucky, we have two guys out at the time. So these guys, uh, whatever you can think of, whatever crimes that that can be committed, they're happening. They're happening in small towns. Um, We've got uh, the drug issues. We've got, uh, but we've got, we've got a great group of guys here and they just get after it and uh, they do a real good job. They, uh, we got a canine unit. Um, so they're, they're very proactive in what they do. Yeah. So then can you talk us through the hours and mo- maybe moments leading up to the, the train derailment from your perspective, Jim, and kind of, you know, from your lens, how this went down and what you saw and what you were thinking as this occurred in front of you? So on that particular night, um, I'm fortunate enough that on on Fridays, I get to spend some time with my granddaughter. So I'd scheduled some time off. And um, between the job and my age and that grandbaby, I I was in bed early that night. And um, I actually didn't find out about it till I woke up about six o'clock in the morning. And uh, my wife said, hey, you guys are on national news. And I looked at my phone. I'd missed a call from Lieutenant Johnson. Um, immediately called him. I said, Hey, I just found out I'm on my way. Um, I got briefed when I got here, but coming in that day, um, seeing that plume of smoke, uh, go up and and just watching it and seeing it on my way in, I thought this isn't going to be over anytime soon. Um, so I got here, I got briefed by Lieutenant Johnson. Um, like I said, those night shift guys, they did an outstanding job. Um, I couldn't be more proud of the way they conducted themselves. Um, from the, the onset being down there, eyes on the scene, relaying information back to dispatch, uh, trying to be helpful to the other first responders who were going to be coming in, and then setting up their, their barricades, shutting down the roads, uh, the initial evacuation process, calling in outside uh, resources, which uh, any small town, anybody, a mag- uh, an event this magnitude, I, I don't care um, 
what size your department is, you're going to need some help. So uh, they did that, uh, Highway Patrol and uh, the County Sheriff's Office. They stayed for the duration of those two or three days. Um, they, they were a big asset and a big help to us uh, just having those extra bodies because we split our we split our department in half. We had half on days and half on nights, 12 hour shifts, no days off. Um, and, and they did it. They did it without complaint. And uh, again, just. Man, it, it, it just you know, and um and and that morning and knowing what we were going to be up against, uh, this this team like it, there's nothing that I could have done by myself. Um, this is a team, and and they all pitched in. I mean, back to the dispatchers, they they would sleep in their cars. Uh, they were sleeping on benches um, just to be there. So. I mean, the other thing is maybe a lot of people don't know is we had dispatchers and police officers living in the evacuation zone. They had to go. Um, but some of them, they, I mean, they stuck around. You had police officers sleeping with their head down on a desk, um, just making themselves a little bed, you know, from being in the military. You got to do what you got to do. Um, yeah, so that, that was pretty much the, the first couple of days of that thing. It was a lot of, a lot of sleepless nights. Uh, a lot of planning and and trying to figure out how we were going to prepare for the next day and what we were going to do. And then always trying to keep somebody on the law enforcement side in that command center. Um, just so we knew we briefed every day, uh, 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Uh, just to kind of keep the troops up to date on what happened today and what we're planning for tomorrow. That must have been really tough to you know, it's so obvious to see the love you have for your folks and 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 the regard you have for them. Um, it must have been really tough to see them uh, demonstrating that level of sacrifice and commitment to the people of East Palestine, and yet enduring what they were enduring from the outside. Yeah, yeah, and I, I haven't even really had time to process it. The, the most I've I've been able to do so far is preparing for this, uh, this podcast today. And, um, man, uh, trying to get through it without breaking down really, because these guys are, these guys and girls, they're just rock stars, man. I'm, I'm yeah. just a big fan of them. If you can't tell, um, yeah. man. Yeah. 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 They mean and, the world to me. Yeah. And, uh, it shows, and, and, and the fact that they were able to, so what was, what was going through your mind, you know, as you're thinking about, okay, this, this happened and you're looking yeah. at the number of folks that you have, you look at, you're looking at the workload that they, that they have on them. Um, kind of what's, what's, what's running through your mind now, Jim, as you're thinking about what life looks like on the other side of this train derailment for your department and, and the role they're going to have to play. So, Every day, you know, you're, you're worried about your people. Um, how are they physically? How are they mentally? And then that was something that you, I just kind of had to sit back and observe, like, are you okay? You need anything? Um, counseling services were made available. I made sure I put that information out. Um, and just being there, not not just for them, but with them. Um, yeah. We had a lot of people coming into the area just to get down there and take a picture with that train and the fire and the smoke or, or shoot video or whatever they were doing. And, and they put themselves in harm's way 
but they're putting the first responders in harm's way too, because we had to go in and get them out. So and initially, the last thing you want to do when you're you're struggling in your small department, you, you tie yourself up on an arrest. It's the transport of the prisoner. It's bringing them back. It's doing the paperwork. It's taking them down to the county jail. You're going to take an officer out of service for uh, anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours. Um, obviously, that's not our goal. We've got a crisis going on here. We want to stay in town. We want to be available for uh, anybody that needed our assistance. But it wasn't working. The warnings weren't working. So I jumped into the ORC and I said, hey, these are the charges. We don't have a choice. We got to start hooking people up and we got to get them out of here. Um, we, we had people just coming down there and, and when we, we would catch them, they snatched them up. Sergeant Moore made the first arrest and it snowballed after that. We had uh, a couple of them during that event. And I think, I think that kind of maybe curtailed uh, some of it. Um, it started to slow down a little bit when people realized that we were serious. I mean, you have an evacuation in order in place. The mayor has uh, put in a, you know, an, an evacuation and, and, a, and a, a declaration of an emergency. Um, he's he's put in a curfew. And for some reason, people just weren't taking it serious. Now, these arrests, again, they weren't people from East Palestine. These were people from outside the area. Yeah. Um, so, again, we go back to the outside um, instigators and influencers uh, just coming in. And, and the one fella thought it'd be a good idea to bring his kids with him. So not only did he get charged for the misconduct and emergency, he got a couple of counts of child endangering as well. Would it be fair to say, Jim, because one of the questions I want to ask you is what what did you feel like you were not prepared for? And I want to leave that open, but it sounds like the outside influencer piece was certainly a major piece. It was. Um, so the this town is like 3.15 square miles. It's a small town. Um, and the outside people that were coming in, including the media that were setting up down in town, it would take up an entire parking lot down there. Um, so a small town like that, and then you throw in a couple hundred, maybe a thousand additional people from contract workers to the yeah. um, FEMA, EPA, the state organizations, federal organizations all coming in. Um, it, it was a lot to handle. And I think um, based on some of the calls we were getting, um, the people of town were getting frustrated. They were claustrophobic. It was, uh, yeah, it, that was the one thing that um, didn't prepare for. And this wasn't, you know, you prepare and you plan for different things. And, you know, they uh, are our first. Um, we were supposed to evacuate here by plan and go to Clark Street Fire Station. Well, Clark Street was off limits for us. So when we did that evacuation for our dispatch, we ended up going to the next town over. So all of the plans that you lay in place, in my mind, the one thing that I never accounted for was the outside traffic that was going to be in here and how we were going to control them and where we were going to put them. Um, the, the original plan for events like this was to have the media at the community center in the park, which is a perfect location. However, we had equipment over there. We had people over there. We had trucks lined up over there. It, it just, it became an impossible situation and things that we weren't prepared for. 
um, having people come in from Washington, D.C. with uh, additional security requirements or wanting to have a town hall meeting or we, we had one wanted to do a press conference right on the main street of town. So we had to shut traffic down while they did that. Uh, just a, a lot of things that happened that we didn't plan for. We had a plan in place, but the plan we had was completely destroyed by this event. It just, there was nowhere for us to, to go. There was nothing for us to do. So we had to go, okay, we had a plan. Now we're on to plan B. Let's make it happen. So when we moved to dispatch operations, we had dispatchers here working. Um, and Sergeant Moore was running equipment out to the other location to get it set up so that they could be up and running there the next day. Um, I had dispatchers volunteer. They wanted to stay to keep the comms up and running. They're like, we'll stay. We'll sign any waiver you want us to do. I'm like, that's not going to happen. Um, right. You know, you, you got to take care. Of, you got to take care of your people. Right. So I, I said, I appreciate the uh, I appreciate you guys wanting to do that, but we can't do it. We got to get you out of here. Um, and the, the, so they went over there and they made a, a piecemeal communication system work. They did it. Yeah, I can't imagine the chaos that was associated with that try, and, and trying to maintain comms uh, in a crisis like that. What were some of your biggest challenges with communications, Jim? Up, down, sideways, all the, you know, the just the ambiguity. What was that like and how did you deal with it? So communications was always an issue um, when you're dealing with other law enforcement agencies because yeah. everybody has their own frequencies. Some, some of the agencies are on the mark system. And um, so we always knew we were going to have issues there. So even when we had, and you know, all the agencies that came in to support and help, um, we try to team them up with one of my guys. So if if they had an issue, at least my guys knew, and my guy that was with them could radio everybody else. So we tried to do it that way. Um, for the dispatch side, the area that they were in in the next town over. Um, they were getting a lot of static on our radios uh, just because of the situation of where they were and tower locations and repeaters. So we ended up giving them Mark's radios. Well, the handheld Mark's radios wouldn't work there. So we had to get them a base unit. And um, we had a lot of support from a lot of different agencies. Mark's came in with, uh, you know, the radios, they set it up. They, we got them up and running with the base unit and they were able to get out and talk fine. So the, EMS coordinator at the time was in the EOC here in town. He was also a part-time dispatcher. So our dispatchers would radio him on marks and then he could radio out the EMS crews on our radio system. So it's, it was just always trying to find a solution to that next problem that was going to come up. Yeah. You know, I love to hear that. It's so, it's so funny how operators, uh, practitioners of, the craft of protecting people will always find a way to talk to each other. It's just, it's just astounding to me. You know, when, when, we, when pineapple express happened, I was, I was just in awe of these active duty members and veterans who were using, you know, this thing with a signal app and were actually helping families move through a sewage canal, you know, and, 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 and actually dropping pins of where Taliban checkpoints were. But the premise is the same, isn't it? It's the ability of these probes who were thrown every bad situation on the planet and they find a way to talk. They find a way to make it happen. So what did you find your role was, Jim, in all of this? How did you, you know, on the other side of this, this chemical spill, how did, as the leader, you know, who is so servant minded, how did you apply your energy 
and navigate your day? Where did you put your Where did you put your effort? Because there's so much that we can learn from this. And I know I'm not trying to make this about you. I'm trying to get inside your head a little bit to just see how you thought about the situation and how you applied your energy to your people. So, in in any any day that I could. Um, if I could be out there with them and assisting, whether it's uh, out at the site, uh, assisting with an arrest, whatever I could do to help them out, obviously I wanted to do that. When we got more towards the vent and burn and, you know, we're going to, like, everybody's getting out of here, we're locking this town down. Um, then it became more of a, I got to be in the EOC. I got to, I got to be relaying this information back to my people. So even when I was off, I, I tried to keep, a nighttime supervisor in that EOC just to, like I said, brief the day shifters coming in. And then we would brief the night shifters coming in, you know, just trying to keep that information flow going. And, um, you know, my guys, I tried to set them up as a reactionary force. So it's our town. And if somebody's calling for help, we need to be the ones going. Uh, And it didn't matter if, if the highway patrol or one of the national guard units might be having some difficulty with a, uh, a a concerned citizen, an irate citizen, um, we would go and we would try to defuse the situation, explain to them why it's not a good idea for you to be in here right now. I mean, we've got people out here, full hazmat suits, our tank uh, supply of air, just doing the monitoring. It's, it's like, this isn't a good idea for you. So just trying to stay in the EOC, trying to be a part of the meetings there, planning with uh, whoever it might be, the the highway patrol. Um, okay, we got to get a plan together and and trying to coordinate with Nor- Norfolk Southern PD, um, you know, getting them into the fold like, hey, we're going to handle all this other stuff. I need you to handle those railroad tracks. So if there's trespassers out there, you know, you got to take care of that. You're welcome to our facility. We'll help you in any way we can. Um, so dragging them into the fold. And then when we were creating the plan to reopen the town, um, you know, getting our street department involved, getting the ODOT involved to move the barricades out of the way. And, and the idea at first was just push them out of the way. We'll collect them later. Um, because we didn't know what we were going to get into as far as how many people are going to come back at the same time. So just Trying, like I said, being in that EOC, trying to relay the information, trying to be a part of the meetings that I needed to be a part of and getting that information out to my people. Yeah. Um, your span of, you know, one of the things that we, we learn in the military, you and I and, and other veterans listening to this is that the, the leader always puts herself or himself where she can best control the fight, where that, you know, where you can best influence the fight. And uh, it sounds like it, it for you, it went from those moments where you were out there with the guys, but then it had to shift as the scale, the scale, the scale and magnitude of this thing grew. You had to put yourself in that, in that EOC. And that's never an easy thing to do when our people are out there on the trenches, you know, exposing themselves. Um, what did your span of control go to Jim? I mean, you, you said, you know, you you guys are a small department, but mm. overnight you grew into something. What did that look like for you? span of control like how many folks are you talking to or like under your kind of wing at the at the height of this disaster so in the uh in the early stages of on the day that we we decided okay this is it i I believe it was 
on the 6th, they were going to do that vent and burn, and they had a time frame and a window. Um, that day, man, I'm telling you, here I go again. But I, I pulled into the park. We had a 7 a.m. briefing with all the law enforcement agencies that uh, that were coming in to help out. And uh, that park has a half mile track that runs around it through the yeah. in the center. And when I when I got in there, that thing was double stacked cars on both sides of the roads halfway around that and it was just the support it was just incredible um to to go in and see that and and you know they're here for us and um the highway patrol they 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 had a sign-in sheet for everybody so they could account for everybody when they when they got back um so they took a lot off the plate that day but just going in there and uh really just thanking them and trying to pair people up with the right people. So everybody had a way to communicate and um, just, I, I don't, it'd be hard for me to put a number on it, but I would say there was probably at least a hundred police officers in that room that wow. day ready to go to work. Wow. And, um, and, and they know it, see this, it's a small community. Uh, Columbiana County is, is rural. It's, it's small. We've always had a tight knit group. And uh, everybody knows when anybody else is struggling or needs help, everybody else is coming. Um, but to see it in action in East Palestine, it took me back. It, it really yeah. did. But just to uh, just that was probably the, the biggest event that I had to be a part of. And like I said, fortunately, um, the highway patrol was there. Um, they have a ton of experience in these kinds of things and traffic control and um, what they were able to do by just having the sign in sheet and making sure that everybody was accounted for. They just took it off my plate. So everybody kind of stepped in and, and assumed a role and um, it, it went as seamlessly as it could, given the circumstances. It yeah, was, it, was, it was an impressive feat. It's amazing, Jim, what's possible in the worst of situations when groups of people who have a singular focus and who trust each other show up for one another, isn't it? It's almost as if it's one symbiotic body. That's right. And that's what it was that day. Um, and that's, that's what it was from day one until they started pulling because everybody's got jobs to do. They've got communities are responsible for yeah. their budgets are responsible for. Um, but it, it was that way from day one until they started pulling their people back. Um, just can't say enough about the help that we got um, from our law enforcement brothers and sisters from the county. Yeah, man. And I don't, you know, obviously, again, just something that I want to make sure it gets out there into the world because it is it is truly a beautiful thing. And it, it happens all over the all over the country when something like this goes down. And uh, just a couple more questions, Jim, as we wind this down. But uh, where, where is East Palestine today? Like from a law enforcement perspective, as the chief of police in that town, um, where is East Palestine today in all of this, and where's it going? Uh, honestly, I think things are looking up. Um, we, we do on the police side; we are still experiencing a slight uptick in the uh, call volume from where we were. Um, I try to stay on top of the numbers and um, just comparing this year to last year. The last just this short period of time that we have, uh, February and March so far, uh, the numbers 
they've increased uh, as far as our call volume and our reports. Um, but I, I think what we're, we're what what I'm comparing it to is I, I think NFL players talk about it all the time, right? The speed of the game, they're coming in, they're brand new, they're rookies, and and the windows are tighter, and you know it's. So when, when you're first starting out, it's like the speed of the game. you got to catch up. Well, you catch up to it. Now I just feel like maybe we're just getting used to the speed of the game or we're adjusting to the new normal. Um, but the town itself, things are looking up, in my opinion. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm born and raised here. I have no intention of going anywhere anytime soon. Um, I'm getting close to the end. Um, the, the, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel um, is coming and I, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to spend more time with the family for sure. Um, but, but this is a good town. It's a strong town, um, blue collar town, hardworking folks. And, um, it, we're just ready to roll up our sleeves and get after it. So, and people are doing that. Um, people are, people are starting to realize that, okay, it, it was an event. It happened. Um, Where are we today and uh, what can we do to make tomorrow a little bit better? My goal, I think the goal of everybody you probably talked to is that East Palestine needs to be better at the end of this thing than it was on February 2nd. I've heard um, that so much. And I think I think we've got the, the people in place, the community leaders that all have that same goal, that same vision. So um, I believe it's possible. And I believe with the people here in this town, I believe it's going to happen. Yeah, I love it. I love it, Jim. Um, what advice would you give um, police leadership, law enforcement leadership, first responders um, in other towns around the country? Um, just having gone through what you've gone through, if you could sit down with them, you know, knowing that this could happen or some version of an event, an unforeseen event could happen in a small town. Just what what perspective, what sh- what best practice? Is there anything that you would share, uh, you know, almost as if you were like if you were on an airplane with them and that plane was going down and you could share one thing? Like, what would it be with uh, first responders, law enforcement leaders around the country that you've learned from from the chemical spill? Well, two things. And, and I'll start off with this. Side note, any anybody listening to this that's in charge of a communication center reach out and contact me. Um, I'll give you my lessons learned, you know, outside of the podcast. But uh, what I would say is I don't know how everybody else um, works, obviously, outside the state of Ohio, but build your relationships, man. Um, Like you got to have those in place before the event happens. So you got to get out there. Um, Like I said, we're fortunate in a way, uh, Columbiana County is very small. I think I know every chief of police in the county. I've had the ability to work with them um, through the years and and just develop relationships because when the time comes, um, those those pay dividends and it paid dividends for this town, this department, and our people in a huge way. Um, just just having those relationships in place and like it's it's a when I get a call from a chief and it doesn't matter if it's something simple as, Hey, do you have a policy for this? Or what would you do about that? Um, I answer that call and, um, and I, and I get them what they need or whatever I have more than willing to give it to them. 
Um, and they also know that if this event occurred in their town, East Palestine would have been there for them as well. We'll send every every spare police officer, every cruiser, every piece of equipment we have um, just to get them through that event. So build those relationships and uh, and just because you have them, you know, you, you got to stay in touch with them. You got to you got to keep reaching out. You got to keep checking on them from time to time. You know, um, I had off duty police officers from other towns calling me personally saying, help me off. If you need me, let me know. I'll be there. Um, just by having worked with them in the past. And that, that's just the kind of people they are. Um, they want to help. They want to contribute. Well, I'll tell you what, when you retire, I'm going to have you teaching rooftop leadership because that is, <laughs> you know, uh, building building those relationships when risk is low and leveraging them when risk is high. You know, when we went through Pineapple Express and the whole Afghanistan, which was the same thing. You had these veterans and active duty members reaching out to each other because of the the social capital they had built over years. Uh, same with our Afghan allies. And again, I'm, I'm only saying that because it's just a universal reality, isn't it? That the crisis is not the time to start building relationships. It's, yeah. it's what you do when nobody's looking. Uh, and you just really gave us a masterclass in that, Jim. So, so I, I super appreciate it. Um, is there anything, let's end on this question. What would you want to say to the people outside of East Palestine, whether that's media, folks watching this who want to know how you guys are doing? Just what what has not been said or needs to be said kind of as the last word to the people outside of East Palestine from your point of view? Um, I touched on it earlier. Small community, tight-knit community, um, good people, hardworking people. And... um, I just wish that, well, we talked about it earlier, messaging, right? Um, The messaging that was coming out of this town to national level was very hurtful. Um, It was, it was disruptive and it it wasn't telling the whole story. So your platform and your invitation to allow us to participate here. um, I think that's a start Um, to the outside world. um, Listen, we're a small town. Um, This town was here. Before the event, we made it through the event, and uh, we'll be here long after the event is is over. Um, these are good people. Um, we have the leadership in place, and I know, I just, I, I feel it in my heart that this town is going to be better than it was on February second at the end of this thing. Um, you know, I, I feel bad. You've talked about it on your show. Other people have brought it up in the in, in the local media. Um, our kids are trying to have sporting events but schools are canceling. I've talked to business owners in town that people wouldn't come and deliver the goods that they needed for them to perform the services that they provide the community. Um, We're here. We're here every day. We're working here. Um, We live here. Um, Just help us out by doing your part. Do your job to help us provide for the citizens of this town. I had an answer. I, I had a uh, an order of office supplies canceled, and I guarantee you it was because of the, the shipper. Um, I had to call and replace the order. They, I, we credited your account. I don't want credit. I want my supplies. So you just hold them to the fire, and and you know, just we're going to be okay. That's my message to the outside world. We're going to get through this. We're going to be better than we were, and we're going to be just fine. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. We're going to leave it right there. And I, and I, I want you to know that there are a whole lot of us 
uh, out here in Rooftop Nation outside of East Palestine that, that absolutely know that and absolutely uh, support you on this and will continue to spread the word on this. Um, I want to thank you for being on um, and, and for what you do and for your entire department, your dispatchers. Uh, they really are heroes, and I want them to hear that from me. There are a lot of us out here who feel that way. I can't wait to get back up there and hug their neck and, and, and thank them personally. Uh, but to all of our listeners and our viewers, I want to thank you for being part of this uh, this this series of the buried stories out of East Palestine. And, and I hope that you'll share this widely with folks in your network who need to understand the true perspective, local context of what happened. And for anybody watching this, please, if you took anything away from today's interview, you know, Jim's words and the emotional connection that he had to the impact that outside actors, bad actors, some ill-intentioned, some not even thinking about it. They're in a trance state. But the impact that they had on his people, the impact they could have had on lives in a very, very serious crisis. And hopefully we can learn from this and shake that trance off. And the next time there's a crisis is let's look in, lean in for ways to help instead of trying to you know, influence the situation from the outside in. Because all you do is end up harming those who are trying to do the right thing. So, Jim, um, again, uh, I consider you a friend. I appreciate everything that you do. Um, let me know when you get a little closer to retirement and we'll pull up on a call. Uh, but, uh, I thank you. I'll give you the last word. No, um, thank your team at rooftop. Um, appreciate you guys so much for taking the time to, uh, to pull this thing together. Um, I, I, I just, I can't, I can't say enough the importance of this for the people of this town to have an opportunity, a platform to tell the stories the way they need to be told. Um, so thank you and thank your team uh, from everybody here in East Palestine. Thank you so much. Right on, Jim. Thanks to everybody for watching. Until next time, we'll see you on the rooftop.